right, well, so I'm uh, winding up, uh, I believe next week is the last uh, week of the series, and uh, uh, also our last week here, uh, where uh, Lisa and the kids and I are, are uh, we've been putting this off, putting this off, putting this off, okay, this, this week, okay, let's, uh, uh, and uh, we're, we're uh, looking forward to the new opportunities, uh, but are uh, very sad to leave this church. Look forward to coming back, hopefully, to, to visit. Um, but uh, uh, this week and next week, we'll be finishing up this uh, series on ordinary, the ordinary uh, Christian life, how God works through ordinary things, ordinary venues, uh, and ordinary people. In uh, uh, this... Um, uh, time that we have here this morning, I wanted to uh, focus particularly on how, in concrete terms, we become more uh, content uh, with God's provision through through the ordinary, because that's really what we're talking about, a lack of contentment bred by expectations that you should always be in an extraordinary gear. Everything should always be... Uh, out-of-the-box, radical, epic, yada, yada, yada. Here's a quote. Uh, I love to start with pop culture. September 2003 marked a turning point in the development of Western civilization. So begins an intriguing study by uh, Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter in A Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. Or how the man became the man. It was the month. Why was that such a big month? It was the month that Adbusters magazine started accepting orders for the black spot sneaker. Its own signature brand of subversive running shoes. After that day, no rational person could possibly believe that there is a tension between mainstream and alternative culture. That's why it's so significant. From that day on, it was clear to everybody there is no distinction between mainstream and alternative. When the black spot sneaker is subversive. After that day, they say, it became obvious to everyone that cultural rebellion of the type epitomized by Adbusters magazine is not a threat to the system. It is the system. And boy, you can look at the parallels uh, today, the emergent church movement, for example. Um, You know, everything has to change. Everything. Everything has to change. How can you change anything while everything is changing? It just doesn't make any sense. But I think everything has to change. What in particular? Well, everything. Uh, Well, what about churches that are doing what you want them to do? Should they change? Well, yeah, I mean, everything needs to change. It's just bizarre. It's hard to know exactly what this means. Everything has to always be changing. When what it really means is everything has to be be more and more conformed to the pattern of this age's world uh, way of thinking. That's what it means. It needs to be changing from sticking out like a sore thumb to being something that is more mainstream. But it's in the language of counterculture. Uh, We need to reboot Christianity. Reboot it. Like it's completely 
gone, and you have to reboot it. Uh, we've got to start from scratch. We've got to start over. And, you know, this is a, a new kind of Christian. I'm, I'm actually giving real titles of books. A new kind of Christian, which is just an old kind of liberal when you read the book. But uh, it's always got to be the new thing. Um, the Reformation that we talk about 500 years ago, the Reformation was exactly as it name, its name suggests the correction of something really important and valuable that had become corrupted. Reformations only happen because what they're trying to reform, they value. They don't think everything must change. They think that some things that are very important for the following reasons desperately need to change. But it's not change as an end in itself, it's change in conformity to the, wor- to the Word of God rather than the world. And that sharply contrasts with the radical Protestant, Anabaptist, and American revivalist tradition, heritage, uh, of basically taking people out of the church and the ordinary means of grace and putting them in, fill in the blank, whatever tank they need to be in to go to the next level of Christianity, to be in the special elite seal version of the Christian life. These are the Navy SEALs of Christianity. And, uh, uh, you know, so what, ironically what happens is you take the people who are, you know, amazing at prayer, in prayer, or amazing in evangelism, or amazing in whatever, and you take them actually out of the church in these, you know, kind of wild, frenetic deals where they can be with people like themselves who are wild and frenetic. They actually need to be calmed down a little bit and belong to the church and not lord it over the rest of the body as if they have something superior to the rest of the body. But the rest of the body needs their gifts that they're really into. That's the, that's the problem. Everybody loses when we do this, this thing of separating the, 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 the uh, Christians who want to fly coach from the Christians who want to fly first class. The reformation of something substantial has enduring influence. But perpetual reinvention attracts immediate attention, but basically doesn't leave anything as a legacy. You can't belong to anything, or your children will never belong to anything, that is radically new. Because the next generation comes along, and that's it. How do we know that? The next generation comes along and pronounces that dead on arrival? Because they do. Every single movement that comes along. It's emergent today. It's already decaying. It's already sort of... uh, the writers who were at the forefront of that movement um, are getting, you know, a little older, and we don't want—we really don't want our movement to be symbolized by older people. And so they're kind of—they're kind of, you know, going into the nursing home for overproductive, uh, overactive uh, teenagers who have aged early, and. And now a new group is coming up, the re-emergent emergence, the ones who are really on the cutting edge of the cutting edge. 
and are going to make everything new. Um, it's really, you know, it, it's hard to know when an earthquake ends and another earthquake begins with all the aftershocks in the middle. That's no, no way to run a vineyard. And yet God, that's exactly how God describes his church. The church is a vineyard. The church is a tree. The church is a, we've got to learn to grow like a tree instead of a forest fire. You know, that's why God uses so many organic horticultural metaphors for the church. It takes time. I think I uh, may have mentioned a uh, week before last that my, uh, my kids have trouble with the horticultural metaphors for anything because, you know, they're, uh, the, the strawberry planting, this was a few years ago, so, you know, uh, they're maybe a little bit better now, but uh, here's the, here, the strawberry planting, and it, it uh, uh, really gained all their attention for three hours until they realized that it, they couldn't see any fruit yet. We just planted it. Yeah, but we can't, I don't see any fruit. And they lost interest so quickly, they never came back to it. Or going fishing with them uh, at that age. It's different now, as I say, but, it, you know... Uh, put the line in the water. Put the line in the water. Put, the, put it back in the water. Put it back in the water. <laughs> Fish normally don't fly onto your hook. You have to have the hook in the water if you want to catch a fish. You know, pull it out again. Oh, pull it out. Oh, oh, I don't see anything on it. And I don't see any. You'll know. You'll know. And that's what I think. There's a, it's a, there's, it, that's just childish. If people are childish when they're children, that's one thing. But if they're childish at like 50, they can't possibly endure the slowness of growth, real growth, in a local church, personally and as a local church. They can't endure that. They can't stomach that. They're going to be taking their line out of their water and looking at the hook when for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been catching fish and keeping them. And, and uh, what's really amazing is newspaper reports and, and even Christian magazine reports don't measure things usually in centuries. They measure things in years. And so that year, the big thing that we should all be a part of is really celebrated. But what happens 10 years from now? Well, I'll tell you what happens 10 years from now. A church like this church is going to be doing pretty much what it's doing now. Hopefully, pretty much what it's doing now doesn't mean that there won't be any change, you know, the, any, any growth and, and realization and I mean, there's a, a, a good, healthy uh, maturation process in the life of a, of a local church, of course. But I mean, it'll, in terms of what it does and the fact that it takes a long time, it'll still be doing that 10 years from now. And then hopefully 20 years from now and 30 and 40 and 50 no one is going to send CNN over to cover this. It will be like watching corn grow. That's usually not reported. Uh, and yet, how many billions of acres are farmed each uh, year so that, uh, so that the rest of the world has corn? And, and Jesus is building that kind 
of a kingdom that doesn't get the short-term press, isn't a flash-in-the-pan sort of thing, but wow, it's still around? That church in Santee is still around? No kidding? Yeah, I, you know, uh, 80, 200 years from now? Wouldn't that be wonderful? 200 years from now. And some people might say, is that, that church is still around? Not, well, of course, because we know, we know it's Pastor So-and-So's church. No, it's just, it's still around. It's still been there. Faithful church. Faithful over many generations. That's how Jesus makes a, make, makes a, a, a vineyard, builds a vineyard. Movements are largely youth-driven, whereas institutions are usually elder-driven. And that's why Paul says, let the young men be trained by the older men. The younger women trained by the older women. It just makes sense. Not because age always means maturity or age always means wisdom, uh, but all things being equal, uh, the cult of, of, of youth uh, keeps you in a bubble where you never really grow up. The best kind of culture, is whether it's secular or religious, the best kind of culture is one that encourages, make, has younger people looking forward to, to becoming aged, like a fine wine. Which, by the way, is not our culture, if you haven't noticed. But that used to be, in traditional societies, it still is. It's, there's a, a certain sense of, of really high regard and high respect for uh, those who are older and more experienced at things. But everybody is sort of comes in America, everybody's equal, you know, at the starting gate. Everybody gets a trophy. So it doesn't matter whether you've, you know, have aged experience or wisdom, experience or wisdom, everybody's idea is equal. Everybody's plan is uh, is is equal. But part of this is uh, the result of a culture that actually began in the church. It's not simply that the church is a victim of this cultural tendency to erode generational memory and generational life, but the church actually was doing it before the culture was. It was called revivalism. The message and methods that Christ instituted are just too weak. They're too ordinary. Um... You know, it's, it's really the day when the great revivalist comes to town. And uh, my grandpa used to uh, uh, help facilitate some of the John R. Rice crusades uh, or revivals. And uh, my grandma used to talk about how a person was not only saved, that would get about three minutes of her, her conversation, you know, Three, it's about, yeah, two and a half, three minutes that someone was saved. But gloriously saved got like about at least a half an hour. You ever hear that? So he said, she was saved, but not just saved, she was gloriously saved. Because the rest of us are ingloriously saved. <laughs> and, you know, so here's, here's what happened for a lot of us, and I know we come from different backgrounds, but for those of you raised... In a more covenantal background, you'll just have to take my word for it that that's how many of the rest of us were raised. Um, you, you come to the summer camp, and you basically have to pretend 
that you were never saved. Because all of that is churchianity. In order to highlight, to highlight that you really are saved now because the what happened at summer camp. Okay, so you're doing all the things and from making a belt to to everything else. And at the end of it all, at the end of it all is this crescendo, this very moving emotional experience. And and the evangelist says, I'm not I'm not talking about religion. In other words, I'm not talking about all those other years that that the body of Christ molded and developed your faith, helped you grow in God's garden. Basically, here's a blowtorch, and I'm going to take the blowtorch. I want you to help me. You put your hands on the blowtorch. We're going to torch all of that in order to say, this is the only moment that counts in your Christian life now. Not just saved, now you're gloriously saved. Contrast that with the statement of John Williamson Nevin. Nevin was a German Reformed uh, theologian and uh, minister, and he wrote one of the most controversial books against Charles Finney and the revivals of the uh, 19th century. Uh, he says, the old Presbyterian faith into which I was born was based throughout on the idea of covenant family religion, church membership by God's holy act in baptism, and following this, a regular catechetical training of the young with direct reference to their coming to the Lord's table. In one word, all proceeded on the theory of sacramental educational religion. Therefore, these two systems, the altar call and the covenant, involve at the bottom two different religions. It's that much. It's that serious. It's that de- now, I'm not saying that, that it's, it's uh, uh, people aren't Christians who are wrapped up in the revivalistic uh, movement, but it's two different conceptions about what religion is. Is religion uh, cultivated by intergenerational uh, vineyard growing... <laughs> Planting and growing and weeding and pruning and all of that, all that messiness. Uh, or is it, is it basically uh, pulling up the plants uh, every three weeks uh, and planting, planting uh, new, new plants? People say all the time, we got rid of a lot of people we were trying to get rid of. Uh, you know, now we finally have some fresh blood coming into our church. I hear pastors talk like that sometimes. And it's really shocking, uh, very different from the idea of a covenant family approach to, to church where we're all brothers and sisters and uh, we weep when anyone leaves. We do everything we can to go get them, to bring them back. You know, if you don't have membership at all, or if you don't take membership seriously, it's just a formal thing, you, a hoop you jump through, then... Uh, then you're not really cared for. You're not really being looked after. And, and remember, that was the last question Jesus asked Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Take care of him. Toward the end of his ministry, as, as he considered the condition of many who had experienced his revivals, Charles Finney himself 
wondered if this endless craving for ever greater experiences would leave people burned out. And it did. He was right. It was too late. He'd already done it. Already created a model for it. He says, I I fear that in order to keep the people, you need to constantly be coming up with new excitements because the old ones become too ordinary and mundane. He was exactly right. That area that that he had uh, destroyed in upstate New York uh, is called by historians the burned over district. Burned over by so many revivals that it just so happens that in that area, that same area, the uh, cults of the 19th century that went into the 20th century, a lot of cults that we know, Christian science, a whole host of, uh, of uh, cults, New Age spiritualities and so forth, all grew up on the perimeter right there in what was called the burned over district, right where it was the, the, the most burned over was also the, were the hot spots of the new, of the new uh, excitements. You know, at some point you just, you know, it gets so powerful that you need a new drug. And then you need a new drug. And then you need a new drug. And it keeps going and going and going until you're inventing your own religion. And so, uh, you know, even in my own lifetime, I've witnessed a parade of radical movements. Now there's the Young Restless Reformed movement. And I knew that when it made uh, Christianity Today's top ten movements changing the world, that it, 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 you know, the kiss of death was upon it. Uh, you know, the worst thing is to, is to now become one of the top trends changing the world. That's just after that announcement, you know the thing is tanking. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go downhill. It's been turned into a trend. Just the very fact that it's been turned into a trend. And that's the... That's the problem, I think, that, that we face when we fail to realize that the body of Christ is a covenant, not a contract. Let me, let me unpack that very briefly, since I've been spending way too much time on the introduction. Uh, and then next week, I'll, I'll uh, uh, try to make uh, this a little bit more uh, practical. But covenant, not contract. We have to, first of all, change our ways of thinking before we can see how this plays out on the ground practically. Everything that I've just mentioned that I'm talking about here participates in a contractual view of reality. What do I mean by contractual view of reality? Basically, it means that my spouse, my church, everything that is important in life, maybe even my my children, they're all service providers. Everything is a service provider. Everything is a contract. Now, the Bible's not against entering into contracts. What I'm talking about is a contractual view of reality, where a, a, a certain, because we have so many contracts, so much of our life is based on you give me, I'll give you, that kind of reciprocity, that kind of contra- contractual way of thinking. As a result of that, we begin to bring that into our own most cherished, important relationships, which cannot be uh, contractual at all. Basically, that's what a a contractual approach is, when you begin to view it as a service provider. 
my wife is a service provider. My husband's a service provider. And not completely satisfied, so simply return the unused portion for a full refund. <laughs> um, you both know what you want. You're both sovereign. In, this is a big part of it. You're both sovereign individuals. You are both sovereign choosers. Choice is central here. You are primarily choosers, not thinkers, not actors, not whatever. You're primarily choosers. Your will is sovereign. Again, this grew out of American revivalism. Now it's it's so much a part of our culture, but it's not just because of consumerism. It's also because of the way we, the revivalism redefined humanity. And so you're free to choose whatever you want. You've, you've both, in your marriage, you've both surrendered some freedom in exchange for certain goods and services. You're both sovereign individuals. You can walk out at any time. But you've decided that you're going to cede some of your autonomy in exchange for certain goods and services that the other partner can supply. And as long as that works, great. If at some point your, your partner fails to keep his or her part of the bargain, then just get out of the contract. A covenantal way of thinking is very different. In the biblical covenants, God is sovereign creator and Lord. We don't own ourselves in the first place. We're not sovereign selves. We are not our own, but belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, especially in salvation. So we're doubly owned. First of all, we are not sovereign individuals in creation, but are image bearers of God. And so to, to, to kick against God's natural order, the way he created us, is not to break the, the, God's law, it's to break yourself against God's law. It's just foolish. But then he's also sovereign. God is also sovereign in redemption. And so we are not our own, but belong to him. And so we don't start from a position of autonomy, electing to cede some of our sovereignty to God in exchange for certain benefits and services. I'm telling you, that's, for a lot of people, I think that is what conversion is. That's what it is. At the, that's the difference between what you got growing up in the church and what the evangelist is now, or, or youth director is now giving you at the summer camp. What he's offering you is a contract. What you got was a covenant. But he's offering you a contract with Jesus now. That's what makes it so, so real. Essentially, you have the sovereign decision in this matter. But what you're going to give up is some of that sovereignty in exchange for the goods and services that Jesus provides. And what you're going to do is make him Lord and Savior. Make him your personal Lord and Savior. Now just think about that for a moment. We got so used to using those terms. I know we don't use it here. But I think we got so used to using those terms that they they didn't appear to be blasphemous at first hearing. But think of it. Making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. it's, It's a little wild, isn't it? First of all, how do you make him anything? I mean, the only hope we have is that he just swooped down and got us. That's the only hope we possibly have. 
Did I make him Lord enough? Have I made him Savior enough? Have I made him? No, the good news is he is Lord and he is Savior and he got you. He paid for you and then he sent his Holy Spirit to, to draw you to himself and there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You belong to me. You're one of mine. That's a covenantal way of thinking. But contractual is you're in the driver's seat. You know, you, you basically can... can can elect to not have things go your way, to not have your best life now. You can elect for things to not go in a direction that God really created you for, rather than a call to repentance, to, to interpreting the world stupidly, <laughs> wrongly, and understanding the gospel as something that's very strange, very odd, but very real far more real than all of these policies that we think we can buy in order to secure some peace and personal happiness. And, and so we have to get away, first of all, from this idea that we own ourselves in the first place. As God's image bearers, we relate to each other covenantally. As people in the body of Christ, we don't, we don't leave because, oh, I'm so tired of the singing uh, or, you know, we, don't, we, we leave because uh, you know, it, it's an ugly building. Or we leave because there's just not enough, there are not enough programs for the kids. Or we leave because, I mean, there are lots of things, lots of reasons uh, uh, for, for people leaving. Or as husband and wife, you know, she just, uh, she, she doesn't fulfill her end of the bargain anymore. You hear that? Sometimes we say that. Yeah, but you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain. What are we saying when we say that? We're saying, I view you as a service provider, not as my wife. No, it, in marriage, I, I have to yield my whole self. I do it uh, poorly. You do it poorly uh, if you're married. But we have to, we have to yield uh, our whole self, at least in principle, to the other person and vice versa regardless of poverty, sickness, or shortcomings, till death do us part. You know, but what about poverty? No. That, what about uh, uh, sickness? Nope. Shortcomings? Nope. Till death do us part. And so a covenantal paradigm means that we're going to entrust ourselves and commit ourselves to other people beginning with Jesus Christ on the basis of the way things are, not on the basis of how we make them by our choice. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. He's the only, he's the only Redeemer of the world, and therefore uh, it, only, it only makes sense for us to submit to him. Uh, this contractual way of thinking is uh, one of the uh, things that uh, Tim Kasser talks about in a new book that has received a lot of acclaim, The High Price of Materialism, uh, a Harvard Business Study uh, report. It, uh, they said, thus it's not surprising to find in our studies that students with strong materialistic tendencies scored high on a standard measure of narcissism. Agreeing with statements such as, I am more capable than other people, I like to start new fads and fashions, I wish somebody would write my biography one day, 
and I can make anybody believe anything I want them to. So you got sort of uh, Hitler and Gates and Madonna all there in one. <coughs> um, they call these instrumental friendships. I call them contractual friendships. But instrumental, same thing. Um, even children can become uh, monetized in this way. Casser quotes the president of the Intelligence Factory. Love the name of the company. The Intelligence Factory. Quote, parents always have to be managing their assets, including their children. So everything is becoming a contract. And, and the, the surest way to nip this in the bud is to begin with the fact that, that we are not our own in creation or redemption, but, but uh, have our life both in creation and redemption in Christ alone. Um, Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that would bear fruit that would last. That keeps us going. Right? That keeps us coming back here week after week, even though there aren't a lot of fireworks. That's what keeps us coming back uh, again and again uh, if we're married to our spouses when, you know, it's not always Fourth of July. And so I don't need, I don't need the validation of society. I don't need the validation of the uh, of, of the service providers, I already know that I am chosen. You already know that you're chosen in Christ. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if that's true, you don't have any reason to treat others as instruments, as means of your self-esteem and your validation. You are who you are ultimately, not because of your choices, but because God chose you and all the other people in your life to whom he now uh, obligates you. And, and with this, when we see this, we see we're part, we're part of the, the, the body that he has obligated himself to. Uh, we begin to see our neighbor as a gift rather than a burden. That neighbor being... First of all, those closest to us in our own home. Um, if, they're an, if, they're, if they're a service provider, they will fail. They will uh, uh, fall down on their side of the, the bargain. But what holds us together is a covenant. I can embrace my brothers and sisters because uh, they're not instruments of my ambition. They're gifts. They're co-heirs of the inheritance that we all share together in Christ. Yes, they're needy, but so am I. I, I hear that sometimes too. Brothers and sisters, very, you know, uh, good churches sometimes will say, oh, but our church is so filled with needy people. There's so many needy people. I say, well, then why not one more? Um, you know, it, it, we're all needy, of course. That's why that, this, is, this is the body of Christ. Uh, the, the contractual way of thinking says, I'm getting more neediness from you than I'm getting out of this relationship. 
a covenantal way of uh, thinking says, because God chose me for, for Christ, he chose you for me. He has obligated you. He has chosen you, just as he's chosen me, to belong to his son and for me to belong to you and you to belong to me. If we're co-heirs with Christ, we're also co-heirs with each other. And it gives a little bit of a different spin um, on, how, on how we relate. So, uh, covenants build true relationships. And true relationships build institutions that are, that are real and have the solidity to pass something down from generation to generation, whereas contractual appetites come and go, they are like uh, the the weather in the high desert. They, the, you know, a, a summer rain that blows through, and 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 violently sweeps everything before it uh, un, until it passes just as quickly as it came. All right. Any questions? Comments? Yes. Yeah. It's a great question. Is it is it part of our American uh the distinctiveness of our American story that it's it's like this especially with the frontier and absolutely books have been written on this pointing out how uh you know you're seriously you were you're going to tell a husband and wife who came over on a boat almost died, lost everybody else in their family, they're building a house from the trees in on the frontier, which then would have been, you know, upstate New York. <laughs> on the frontier, they built a house out of nowhere, and you know, it's nothing to kill for the wife to kill a bear. Uh, you're gonna tell that couple that they're hopeless and helpless and can't save themselves and they need they need Jesus Christ, uh, and there's nothing they can do to contribute to their own salvation. Now, the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps became part of the religion as well. And that Charles Finney and other revivalists, just really their theology was attuned to that. But I think you see it also in, in everywhere you go. I, I was just in India and saw the same, uh, exactly the same patterns. Um, uh, and then uh, last week, some uh, uh, students from Korea came in and and uh, had an interesting interaction. And I, I love to say things like, now, I don't know what it's like in Korea, but here it's dot, 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 when I know full well it's the same way in Korea. And, and then they say, oh, yeah, let me tell you how it's exactly the same in Korea. It, I mean, anywhere you go, this is the, the global logic now. Everything is contractual, and we just don't even think of our most important relationships as covenantal anymore. Uh, you know, unless we really swim against the stream, it's hard. It's it's tough, Angela. And then we'll close. Can we also be, the, that time is also like a seeker sensitive 
to someone, they want to preach it where it would appeal to their sensitivities of things or their yeah. belief or understanding of things. And, and perhaps Charles Finney's idea of, well, these people are rugged individualists, let me appeal to that, and it became this yeah. Yeah, I think I think that uh, I think that it's true, but um, I think also that that it was a theology that created the individualism and the the sense that I'm the center of the universe. Um, I think whatever gods that me for my unconquerable soul, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, and that was Charles Finney's theology. So no wonder he appealed to. A lot of people who already kind of uh, who already kind of held that view, um, but yeah, here, here's the problem with uh, uh, what you often hear people say is, well, you've got to start where with people where where uh, you have to start with the place where people are at that moment, and then you bring them further. One of the things I heard from one of the theologians in in, in India was. Uh, yeah, we, we have very different ways of coming at these issues. Like, for instance, whether people should even have to be baptized and profess faith publicly to be called a Christian because of the persecution of the, of the Hindus. Um, uh, a normative answer really drove, you know, drove some of them uh, to, to, to debate. And uh, you know, several said, well, in India... First of all, you have to give people what they want and then lead them breadcrumb trail to what they need. Wow, that's so fascinating. It's only Indian. I have never, ever, ever heard that in the United States of America. Um, yeah, we all think we're different, we're unique, and sort of, that's sort of the way things are. Here's the deal. James Montgomery Boyce said this years and years ago. Whatever you use to get them in, you've got to use to keep them. And that's absolutely true. If you get people in with a contract, sign this contract, sign on the dotted line, and oh, by the way, don't read the, the fine print. We'll deal with that later. Just sign on the dotted line, make Jesus your personal service provider, then uh, uh, great, we'll take that from you and we'll go from there. If that's the way you start, you're, don't even pretend to get them to the covenant. If they if you get them to sign a contract, that's their way of thinking. That's that's the approach. Then they're just going to break it off when it doesn't work. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. That-